Okay, let's try this. It's good to talk to you. It's the first podcast I do by myself in a while. My first ones used to be like this, just sitting at the computer trying to share my thinking on stuff. But lately I've been doing them with other people, with Rob, with MBI, with Jimmy. And it's very, very different. And I'm realizing now that there's some stuff that I'm learning that I can try to bring back to this solo format. I was having a conversation with my friend David Senra, who does one of my favorite podcasts called Founders Podcast. And he was telling me about how he's talking to someone, one specific person when he's recording, and just having a conversation with that person, sharing what he's thinking. And it's very different than trying to talk to lots of people in the abstract. I think the energy can be very different too. And I think that's one of the big things I did wrong with my early solo podcast. I was kind of like, I don't know, just I didn't know who I was speaking to basically and it affected the energy level. So now I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to do it today. Like this is something I want to learn to do over time. It's a, a skill that you develop over time. But one of my goals is to be able to do a decent job even when there's not a, a guest and someone else to, you know, feed off their energy and bounce off what they're saying. I'm going to try a little bit of that today. We'll see if it, if it works. So moving on to the, the Ask Me Anything. First, I just want to thank all of you for listening, for reading. All those of you who are supporters, this Ask Me Anything is happening because 5% of you decided to become supporters. That was really a big milestone for me. That was really touching because I started at 0%. And so, you know, getting to five was a pretty long journey. I hope we can at least stay there or go above that over time. But that was a very nice milestone. So thank you again for that. And thanks to all those of you who sent questions. I don't know if I'll be able to answer all of them, but I got 42. So um, let's get started. The first question is by someone anonymous. They ask You said you don't hold cash and expect your companies to dig you out of a hole. Why do you think this is better than holding some percentage in cash for opportunistic action? I'm not sure that's quite what I meant when I said that. I'm not sure where I said that. I, I say a lot of things, so I'm not exactly sure how I formulated what you saw. But my general thinking here is that with investing, you have to know yourself. You have to know what you're good at and what you're bad at. And some people are very good at doing exactly that. You know, sitting on a ton of cash and when the moment is right, like they pounce, they, they deploy a ton of it at, at really, really good prices. And this more than compensates for the rest of the times when the market may be expensive or at least not cheap enough for them to buy and they have to carry all of that cash. That's a drag on performance. With my own wiring, with investing, Over the years, I've figured out that I'm not really good at that. I tend to buy too early or I don't know. I, I'm not really good at holding cash, basically. And what this means for me is that if I was to hold a bunch of cash, at the end of the day, I would do worse because of this cash drag during the, the good times in the market. And because I probably wouldn't you know, make good enough use of the cash during the bad times to compensate for that. And so it's just a personal kind of preference. It's not saying that it's the best for everyone. And what I'm saying is not necessarily that I expect companies to dig me out of a hole. It really depends you know, how the hole got there. 
if the macro is moving around and multiples compress, it's very different than if there's a problem with that specific company that could change the thesis, that could change my reasons for holding it. But in general, if I'm still satisfied with everything and it's just the market moving around, okay, I'll miss on some opportunities, but I expect that my CEOs, the CEOs of my companies, will find good things to do in whatever situation. And so that may be doing some M&A when there's distress in the market or whatever. It could be buying back shares. It could be investing in R&D, hiring more people, like whatever. Like I leave it up to them to react to market conditions. I don't think I'm the best person at constantly changing investments and churning out positions all the time because, okay, uh, this year, these types of companies are going to do well, but I got to get out before they all stop doing well because and then next year I'm going into mining or like I, I'm not good at moving around all the time like that. So that's probably what I meant. I, I more expect my CEOs to be reacting. Like if there's more inflation, well, there's probably some things they can do about that. If there's, I don't know, a dislocation in, in their industry, maybe they can take advantage of it. Next question. This one is by Rob King, a longtime supporter and reader. Hey, Rob. He asks, what was your favorite book that you read last year? Uh, that's a tough question, in part because I haven't read that many books in the past year. I used to read a lot more. This slowed down a lot when I had kids, you know, taking more time and energy. And then since the pandemic started, that it slowed down. My reading slowed down even more. Uh, so sadly, I haven't read that many books. But let me look at my list of books. One that I've read at the recommendation of my friend Rishi is The Courage to be Disliked, which is kind of an intro to Alderian psychology, which I wasn't familiar with. But the book was very interesting. The main thing I took away from it is the separation of tasks for people. How others perceive you or what they think of what you're doing is not under your control, so it's not your task. Your task is to do like whatever you set out to do, try to achieve your goals, and you leave it up to others to react to it or what they think about it. But you can't you know, spend too much time worrying about it or let that guide you because this, this is not your task, right? This idea was very useful to me since I read the book. So I, I recommend it at least for that. But there's a lot more in there that you may like. Next question. This one is by Thomas. It's if you could spend only two weeks in Quebec province, what would you do? That's funny because I'm, I'm probably... The worst person to ask about that i'm not sure why but like even nearby like in ottawa people ask me like oh what what would you do in ottawa I'm, maybe i'm not a person that does a lot of stuff or maybe it's because you don't do the kind of touristy stuff in your own area like you do that when you go elsewhere but w when you just live there i don't know maybe you don't see it anymore or it doesn't seem as as notable to you so this is kind of a non-answer but I'm not sure what I would do. The old parts of Quebec City are very nice. Like a lot of it dating back to like the 1600s, 1700s. I don't know. That's a good question. Next question. Now this one is by Tico Coasson. I'm sorry about the pronunciation of your name. He asks, can you describe your approach to thinking about how macroeconomic conditions may affect investment outcomes? For example, I'm struggling with some hesitancy around investments in certain stocks because rate hikes that slow economic activity may disproportionately affect them. Is that a dangerous approach that I'm taking? That's a good question. 
in general, I think it's very easy to be scared by the macro picture. And so what I try to do is zoom out and remember how ever since like, I don't know, 2011, like every year people have found really, really convincing reasons to tell me why it was a bad idea to hold stocks, why forward returns would be terrible, why, you know, all kinds of terrible things would happen. And a lot of terrible stuff has happened, but still stocks are much higher today than they were back then. And good individual businesses could still do very well, right? It's a kind of a, a small version of what Buffett does with his when he talks about how he was born in I don't remember when, but like just the twentieth century he had like World War One and the Spanish flu and the Great Depression, World War Two, all kinds of other wars, you know, Vietnam, Korea, stagflation and dictators and the Cold War, all that stuff happened and yet a system that works still produced a lot of wealth and value, you know. So it really depends on what you're trying to do on your time horizon and all that. I know it's all kind of cliches, but it really depends, right? If you're trying to kind of be a macro investor, then I think it's kind of a different game. And if you understand that very well, if you really think you have an edge there, if you really think you can make decisions based on the macro, that's great. If you really don't know, but it's just kind of generally scary, I would hesitate to make decisions based on that. If you're going to hold a really great business for a long time, well, great businesses have been through a lot and you know they still created value. So, of course, it depends on the price you're paying. Like we've seen a bunch of valuation multiple compressing lately and all that. They're like, Of course, you, you got to take all of that kind of stuff into account. Like in, <laughs> investing is hard. You know, if it was easy, everybody would do it. So, you know, all that remains. But I would still be very careful about letting the macros carry you away because I feel like a lot more money has been lost because the macro has scared people off from good investments than money has been lost by people, you know, being in good investments that turn out terrible because of some macro factor. But yeah, I know it's not a super satisfactory reply. It doesn't tell you exactly what to do. But my general approach to that is to try to find businesses that are not relying on only one specific market condition, right? Some businesses like the they'll do well only in one condition. Like, oh, if rates are at zero and money is free, like they can do well, but anything else are going to be terrible. Like, okay, those kinds of businesses, like you should worry about the macro. But good businesses that create a lot of value for their customers, you know, that have good management, good culture, that don't rely on super high leverage and are not like fragile in a bunch of obvious ways. These businesses will ride all these kinds of waves and have good and bad times, but they'll come out on the other side. That would be how I think about this kind of stuff. Next one is by Ashish Daga. Thanks for creating the fun newsletters. Thank you. Can you share some details about your note-taking and curation process and how to get better with it? I'm not sure if you're asking about my note-taking in general or for the newsletter. Um, I guess there's a lot of overlap there, though I don't use the same software for both. But the way to get better is first to do it very consciously, right? If you just take notes like kind of randomly here and there on post-its and oh, I, I have a Google Doc with some of that and, and it all kinds of like gets lost over time, right? If two or three years in the future, you can't fi easily find something you wrote today about a certain topic, then your system is not gonna help you long-term. So the first thing to do, in my opinion, is to design the system in such a way that you, you're building something, right? It kind of compounds it. It's not a leaky bucket where you keep pouring water in, but it's just coming out on the other side. 
So my, my note-taking is taking place mostly in two places. My personal stuff is mostly in Obsidian, which I've written about a bunch and is some of my favorite software from the past few years. What's great about Obsidian is everything is saved locally on my computer in plain text. It's all in markdown format, which is kind of like, imagine like HTML, but super, super simplified. So if you want italics or links or all that, you, you can do all of that with like brackets and asterisks and stuff like that. So I like the future proofing of that. You know, even if Obsidian starts to suck or tries to lock me in some way, like I can still use any of a huge number of markdown viewers and editors to look at all my stuff. So I don't want to be like people who invested heavily into Evernote years ago and now they were kind of stuck in there because it's super huge pain to try to export it all elsewhere. So that's why I've been building on Obsidian first, but I also love it because the software is great. It's it's improving very quickly. The two developers are incredible. The velocity of their improvements and also their taste, right? They're very, they have a, a taste that fits with mine when it comes to UX and UI. Also, there's a huge community around it. It's very modular software. So you have all kinds of plugins and teams, like you can make it look how you want. You can add a ton of functionality to it with plugins. You can build your very own software that fits with the way your brain is wired. So that, that's what I love about it. And then I like that, like with a lot of modern note-taking software, there's two-way links. So any word you can put double brackets around and that'll create a, a bi-directional link. So when you click on it, you go to the page that's titled with that word. But when you're on that page, you can also see what links there, right? So you can go forward and backwards with the links. I feel like this offers the best opportunity over time to find again stuff that you've written in the past when you need it. What I mean by that is if in five years I'm like looking at company X and I go on the page of that company, well, I can easily see everything I've written that references this page, right? So I can I can find all kinds of stuff, maybe you know, excerpts of interviews or, or articles or just random thoughts I had about stuff that's related to this. I can find it again. The problem with a bunch of other systems is that the notes are almost impossible to find, right? You can randomly dive in if you want. You can do some simple searches, but if you, you can't think of the right keyword, if you, you don't happen to stumble and stuff, like you'll never find it again. If you write notes every day for years and years, like it's just too much stuff. While with Obsidian, I feel like it's going to be much easier to refine stuff at the right time when I need it. It's kind of like a personal Wikipedia in a way. I also feel like your system has to be expandable enough so that if you keep adding stuff every day, like five years later, you, you don't want a super restrictive system where everything has to be formatted just so every... That's what I like about Obsidian. It's pretty flexible. You can... You can have tables and links and images and embed files and audio and almost anything you can think of can fit into those notes. And for the newsletter stuff, I use Notion, mostly because the newsletter notes are temporary. I tend to put a bunch of notes in there, stuff I, I may want to write about. And then once I write about it, I delete them. So Notion is kind of like this temporary, not working memory because I have an, a different file for that for just to just capture stuff before I put it in Obsidian Notion. But Notion is like more like mid-term memory and Obsidian is long-term memory. And I use Notion for that because it's like Obsidian is fairly based on plain text, basically. So it's more about text. Notion is better at like if, if you put in a, a URL for a web page, yeah, well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to crawl that web page and create a little thumbnail for you and extract the title and some excerpt. And so 
if I put a bunch of bookmarks in Notion, they'll, they'll look better and it'll be easier at a glance to see what is what than with Obsidian. So that's probably why I use it for the newsletter stuff. Next question. This one is by someone anonymous. It says, two questions here. Number one, I think your goal of 5% paid rate is misguided. You should optimize for reach. And number two is, can you tell us more about your life before becoming an investor? I knew you were a fire guy, but that's all. Okay, on number one, I'm not sure I understand. My 5% goal, which was the goal I stated to do this, ask me anything, was not really limiting anything because it was the newsletter is still without a paywall and accessible to anyone. So I don't think it's limiting reach in any way. It was more a, it was more like a milestone to aim for than a, like a hard goal, like, oh, uh, I need 5% and not more, or I need 5% or I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what you're asking, I guess I'm trying to say. But the thinking with the 5% was that I'm trying to keep the newsletter without a paywall and trying to make this model work because to me it feels a lot better to spend hours writing something and then when I hit publish, 100% of people can read it. And then I get feedback from those people and, and meet people and get great new ideas and I try to feature some of that feedback in the newsletter and it's kind of, it's, it turns it into a conversation and I get a lot of value out of that. If I was paywalling it and maybe, I don't know, 15% of people subscribe, it would be great in a way to have more paid subscribers because that helps pay the bills, but it would feel worse in many other ways. So I think I am optimizing for reach. I just need to find a balance where, you know, I can pay my bills and I can justify spending this much time on the project. Because for the past almost two years, most weeks I've been working on the newsletter seven days a week. I just need to align kind of like incentives and, and my opportunity cost with it. As for my, my life before becoming an investor, I think I mentioned some of that on Jim's podcast. I worked for a media startup out of university and I was there for 11 years. I kind of did all kinds of jobs there because, well, in a startup, you, you don't have that many people, so everybody has to wear a bunch of hats. And it's during that time that I figured out like this goal of becoming a full-time investor, which itself is not the goal, but the goal is to have control over my time, to have the freedom to follow my curiosity, to explore the kind of stuff I want to do. And investing is a way to accomplish that. Investing is a way to get paid to learn about the world, to understand the world. Like so much of the world is happening through what companies do because to do most hard things, you need a bunch of people to work together and to get a bunch of people working together, you kind of need to pay them and to f figure all that stuff out. And so that, that mostly happens in companies. Not always, but there's a lot of it there. So it's, it's a great lens through which you can look at technologies and all kinds of cool stuff. So that's been my way. Next question. It's by... Runknowns. How do you choose what goes in each edition? I would imagine you have a working list of various events topics that you add to as you come across them throughout the day. What gets added, moved to the next edition called? Which ones do you think deserve to be expanded upon? This is hard because it mostly comes down to judgment. And basically the newsletter, I'm writing it kind of for myself. I'm writing what I like to read about, what interests me. So that's kind of the test, right? If I'm looking around, I'm reading stuff all day, and it's like, oh, this is really cool. I put it aside in that Notion file I was talking about for inclusion in the newsletter. And then when it's time to sit down to write, I kind of look at that list and like, okay, oh yeah, that thing, I want to write about it right now. I have an idea and then blah, blah, blah. I'll, you know, type on the keyboard for a while and hopefully something good comes out. So it's hard to systematize 
this process because it's about a subjective experience of being interested by something. I think a lot of publications have different goals, right? They're trying to, I don't know, attract the widest audience or like they have these other goals so they can kind of track these metrics and be like, okay, when I write about this topic, like people are really interested, like our engagement goes up and page views goes up and we can get shared on Agri News or Reddit or like if you're going for that, like you can have these external metrics. But if you're going for, for what I find interesting, it kind of comes down to that, I think. So yeah, as, I, as I'm reading all day, I'll put stuff aside in the Notion file. Sometimes if I have a really great idea and it's kind of like, it kind of pops into my mind, almost fully formed, I'll write it right away because the friction of kind of trying to recreate it later or reload it into RAM, uh, you can lose a lot of stuff there. So I try to strike while the iron's hot, as they say. So that's not a part of having the flexibility. I'm lucky that this is basically what I'm doing full time. So if I find something interesting, I can write it up right away. A lot of newsletter writers have it much harder because they have a real day job. And so maybe they see something during the day, but they can't do it right away. They have to put it aside. And then in the evening, they have to refine that energy, that interest that they had, or you know, trying to recall all of the points that they wanted to write about. That must be more difficult. Next question. This one is by Andy. Oh yeah, Andy, longtime supporter. Uh, what's a vision of the future 10, 30 years out you think of regularly? The more detail, the better. This is the science fiction segment of the program today, sponsored by Andy. 10, 30 years is a long time at the rate at which things are changing right now. Like I'm just looking at the, the DeepMind and OpenAI stuff. Like just in next year, we may be somewhere really crazy. So it's hard, but some of the stuff I'd like to see happen, like it's not necessarily a vision in that I'm predicting it, but what I wish would happen, I wish we'd make much more progress on energy. As I've written about a bunch, I think we made a bunch of mistakes when it comes to nuclear power. People are mistaking what they imagine it is with what it actually is. And also they forget that we have to look at the alternatives that we have, right? It's not nuclear power versus another perfect source of power, right? It's nuclear power versus coal and gas and hydro and wind and solar. So with the choices we have, I think it's pretty clear that nuclear should play a much bigger part. It's much safer than most other sources. It's more reliable as a base load. It, it would greatly diminish the incentives in the system for all kinds of dictators and authoritarian and totalitarian regimes from staying in power and making lives much worse for the citizens of these countries. There's all kinds of, of reasons why I think it should be expanded. So hopefully over the next 10, 30 years, some progress will be made there. I don't know if it's going to be SMRs or some reforms with regulations. Maybe we're already seeing some political winds shifting because of Ukraine. I don't know, but I'd like to see more of that because like, the future should not be only about let's try to use as little energy as possible and let's make it clean and let's, you know, let's replace what we have. No, I, I believe in the vision that energy should be plentiful, it should be cheap, because it's what's helping all kinds of stuff, positive stuff, to happen, right? All kinds of technology, all kinds of medicine, all kinds of, you know, things that make people's lives better. There's still a lot of people living today that are living in conditions that we need to improve a lot. And we can do a lot of that with plentiful, clean energy. You know, just the potential for, like, large-scale desalination to irrigate large areas of the planet. 
Uh, so that's one thing. I'm not going to go too deep in there. What else I'd like to see? I'd like to see big progress made on um, curing various diseases of aging, rejuvenation therapies, because it's one of the things that causes the most suffering on the planet today and the most lost human potential. We spend tens and tens of billions of dollars on, on like I say, the vaccine for COVID, uh, mobilizing scientists around the world to save like many, many lives, like millions of lives potentially. But there's like 100,000 people dying every day of the disease of aging, and we don't do nearly as much, like scale to scale, right? If, if we look at the scale of it, we, we don't do proportionally nearly enough to try to improve that. Mostly because it, this is changing slowly, like in recent years, but over the over time, it's been a more defeatist approach, right? This is life. This is what's happening. Like there's nothing we can do about it, or we convince ourselves it's a good thing to become like frail. And every other disease is a bad thing, but the the, the diseases that come from aging, oh well, that's just nature. And I don't think we have to accept that. I don't think it's a good idea. I think that whatever problems would come from curing those diseases, extending healthy life by a lot. Like I'm not talking about like frail 90 years old, just living a few years longer. I'm, I'm talking about like, why can't we have the body that we have at 30 for an undefined amount of time, right? Every cell in your body is going to be replaced many, many, many times over time. Let's just keep that process going beyond the evolutionary blind spot that happens beyond reproduction age, right? Which is Like, there's no natural selection past reproduction age for humans. So that's when everything starts going wrong in our bodies. But I think um, we don't have to accept that. So hopefully, over the next 10, 30 years, there's some progress made there. I think it's one of the highest leverage ways to help humanity reduce suffering. Our lives are way too short. Like, a bunch of 80 years old are just starting to figure some stuff out, like, about their lives, about the world. How amazing would it be for people to live much younger and to you know, keep gaining skill and wisdom and experiment with all kinds of other fields. And I don't know, to me, that's a very, very nice view of the future. I think I'll, I think I'll leave it to those two main things, but I'm sure I could, like over a beer, I'm sure we could talk a bunch, a bunch of other stuff. Next one, uh, Anonymous again. What are your principles for raising children? I don't know. Do I have any? Um, I kind of like the idea of, not condescending to children too much, like not treating them as children too much, talking to them as equals when possible. Like you still need some discipline and some like parental guidance and some boundaries and all that. But I, I always try to kind of like get on a knee and get on the, the kid's level and talk to them in the eye and ask them about what they want, what they what they think. Like try to to level with them, I guess. I don't know. That's one thing I like to do. My other big thing probably is I want to make them curious about the world and I want to make them realize that once they have these questions that they can answer them or they can work on them, even if they don't find the answers, sometimes just looking is all of the fun, right? So with my son, we'll talk about stuff and then I'll try to make him curious about everything that surrounds him, right? How does the sun work, right? Why, like the computer you're using, how does it work? Like I try to ask him questions about all kinds of stuff. And then either I, I, if I know the answer, I'll share it with him in a way that he can understand. Or I try to also make it very clear, I don't have all of the answers, but I have a process for trying to find them. You know, it can be as simple as, you know, Googling around and looking on Wikipedia and finding the answer we're looking for. 
or it, it can be more involved in that we get books or whatever but just getting them used to that process of like questioning stuff around them finding answers i think if you can create those habits in a kid you've given them a lot not everybody has that or some people kind of discover that over time but not a, as a at a young age so i think it gives you a good head start next question one by laser with a bunch of a's how would you quantify the potential durability of a company slash business quantify yeah that's a good question laser i don't know i'd ask you the same if you were in the podcast right now but here i am solo i don't know how i would quantify it like i know what it would look like as i'm like learning about it i i, I can kind of see in my mind like the, the types of patterns that i would look for right like our margin stable or getting better over time like is, is organic growth doing well and like the kind of products that they're selling like what kind of churn are they getting what's are the customers coming back for a long time is the value of what they're giving durable is the kind of stuff that changes quickly or you get all these kinds of clues everywhere and when you put it together you can kind of look at the terminal value of the business and be like okay this is going to be around for a long time what they're doing is going to be useful for a long time like the competition as the, the there's these reasons why competitors can just come in and you know do as good a job you put it all together with all these clues but quantify it like i'm not sure i could give you a number like okay if ROIC is going up over time for more than 10 years and so i'm not quite sure i guess it's a good question It's probably more of a general pattern matching thing than a, a specific thing I can just look up. Next question. This one is by Chris Fried. Where do you see Constellation Software being in five years? Size of company? Will the culture culture be maintained? I can't say exactly like, okay, I think they'll have this size market cap. But generally, I think Constellation is kind of like, I see it as a system. And to me, the system has been evolving recently to accommodate the larger scale. And to me, the system has been working well. So I can't give you like a, a number exactly, but I tend to feel like they'll do decently well. The challenge for them was to deploy more capital. And for a long time, this M&A activity was more centralized. Mark and Bernie and the M&A people at HQ were doing a lot of it. But they they've successfully decentralize it by pushing down this this deployment for a lot of the especially the smaller deals down to the the group level and the business unit level and the portfolio manager level and all these people have been apparently doing a great job because the ROIC has been staying high as they've been buying a lot more businesses than before these people have been gaining experience so i expect that over time Like all of that feeds into the machine, into the system where they have base rates for everything. They've been following every acquisition forever. And all of this data is used to make better predictions about future acquisitions they're making, right? So I feel like the system is, is working very well there. And I like how they've made some changes to try to deploy into bigger businesses. Many of those may be more distressed and runoff and not highest quality businesses that are doing super well because for those there's a, a big market the competition is, is ready to bid pretty high for those but i feel like once in a while they're going to get a pretty big one that's kind of like a divestiture from a larger company or something like that and and their track record of getting value from these deals is very good so like i'm fine if a larger acquisition makes their organic growth look bad in aggregate if the value created is really high, right? So I'm fine with the optics as long as the value creation is there. 
to go back to your question, will the culture be maintained? I think as long as Mark is there, of course. I'm not too worried. Even if Mark was to retire from the few AGMs that I've been to, I've been in breakout sessions with Mark Miller. And from everything I've heard, like everybody around Mark seems to really get it. All of the group heads could almost be CEOs of the whole thing. And I feel like, you know, they'd all be a bit different. But on the main things, they get how the system works. They get the systems thinking that goes behind the machine that is Constellation. And to me, that would be maintained. Even if, like, how do you replace Mark, right? You, you don't have another Mark uh, waiting in the wings. He's a once in a few generations, probably CEO, to me anyway. But I feel like the culture would, would still survive and the company would do well. Next question by JG. How do you treat stock-based compensation when valuing tech businesses? Do you treat it as a real expense? Back it out of free cash flow. Do you worry about employees leaving the company when the share price is down significantly? Of course, it's a real expense. The question is like, what are the pros and cons of doing it one way over the other? If we're talking about a small startup that's fast growing, they don't have the cash, but they, they need the talent if they need to make it, right? So they print their own currency and have basically employees finance this phase in the growth. And if the company makes it, well, the employees are going to get a lot of that value, like more than if you had paid them in cash. But you didn't have the cash, so it's, it's not like you had a choice anyway. And if the company doesn't make it, well, you pay them with worthless currency. It's, it's just kind of a way to get through that early phase, right, in the company's life. You're not going to compete with like Google and Amazon and Apple on, on cash salaries. So you have to figure out another way to attract this talent. And so by giving them a piece of the equity and of the upside of a young startup, that makes a lot of sense to me. For much larger businesses, it can get a bit trickier. And there I think it depends a lot if like, if the stock is trading very, very high, it may make sense to use a lot of it to you know, pay employees because you're basically printing a overvalued currency. So why not, right? It's a good capital allocation in a way. If the employees want it, like it's, it may not be as good a deal for them. If the stock is very undervalued, then that's basically the opposite, right? It, it would make me question the capital allocation of management. But in some industries, it's almost like a culture, right? If everybody else is paid with a bunch of equity, it could be hard to attract talent without it. And as you say, if the share price is down, of course it's a it's going to be a problem to retain talent. That's why they, they tend to reprice options and try to do all kinds of stuff to avoid losing talent because it could become a, a downward spiral where the stock goes down and then you lose a bunch of engineers and salespeople and, and you have trouble. Businesses can die from this. So there's some reflexivity there that you have to keep in mind. Um, but in general, yeah, it's a real expense. The question is like, is it a better idea to pay with stock than with cash? It's, a, it's kind of a, just a regular capital allocation decision. I try not to double count it. Like if a company prints a lot of stock for compensation, then if you look at it on a per share number with the other metrics, it's already getting diluted. So you get the impact of the SBC there. You don't have to count it again, like by removing it from other metrics. But yeah, I'm not the accounting expert on that stuff. Next question by Armando Brown. Uh, what are your most recurrent valued content sources? That's a good question. This is where it would be useful to just spend a bunch of time going through my bookmarks. But in general, Armando, a lot of it I put in the newsletter. So if you just follow the links to the sources, 
like you'll see some of them will come up again and again and these are, are some of my favorites that's the best way probably to to know what i'm looking at next question this one by nacho felder any advice for someone trying to start a finance blog i'm overwhelmed by the amount of information out there and really struggle to write something i feel confident sharing I've been investing for just two years and thought it would be a great idea in order to review my thought process when it comes to investing. That's a good question. It depends on your goal, right? If you're like, okay, I want to write a finance blog to quit my job and make this make a living out of it, like that's gonna be very, very hard to do quickly. I think your main goal should be like improve yourself, improve your own process, improve your, your skills, your knowledge. What's powerful with public writing is that it forces you to think better, basically. If you're only writing something in your own personal notes, your brain is gonna want to skip some steps to hand wave some stuff away because like nobody's gonna call you out on it. If you're gonna write in public, there's always this knowledge in the back of your mind that you know if there's BS in there, people are gonna call you out on it. Uh, so it forces you to do better thinking, basically. Not that you know just writing in public makes your thinking perfect or, or still tons of mistakes that I make all the time, but it forces you to improve or at least try. And so that's super valuable to me. The advice I give sometimes to people writing is that the internet is very good at finding good stuff over time, but it may take a while. And most people give up before that happens. And so you have to write for yourself first, not for others, because at first there won't be that many others. Or maybe you'll be lucky and there'll be a ton of people right away, but there's a good chance there won't be. And so you have to have this kind of inner scorecard, as Buffett would say, and do it because you like doing it, because you're learning while doing it. And you don't have to be an expert to want to share stuff. That's another a thing I hear a lot, like, oh, I, I love to write, but I, I only have X years of experience. That's totally fine, as long as you don't try to BS people and pretend you're someone you're not, right? So if you're a newbie, you could write the best blog ever about learning about finance. Share what you learn. There's millions of people out there who are at the similar stage in their process as you are, right? They're on a similar part of their journey. And they're going to find what you share super interesting because they're, they're right there, right? They won't want to read, you know, George Soros right away. But maybe read about someone who's doing similar things to them and f struggling with similar questions and finding answers for them. That could be super useful. So I don't think you need to worry about, you know, how long you've been doing stuff. The other thing I would focus on is try to be very authentic. And I know that sounds cliche, but too many finance writers try to sound professional. They try to sound like a, a Reuters or a Financial Times or Wall Street Journal article, right? They try to make it super bland and professional and kind of remove themselves from it because they think it sounds more, I don't know, authoritative or something. But I feel like if you try to compete with the Wall Street Journal at being the Wall Street Journal, you're never going to make it. You have to kind of make your own niche and compete on being you because nobody else can be a better version of you than you are, right? So kind of lean into that personality aspect. Let it shine, right? What makes you different? What makes you the individual that you are? What's the lens through which you're seeing the world? Only you as that one. So what's cool about it, right? What are you seeing that I'm not seeing? That's what I want to know. Yeah, so I feel like if you try to do that, if you just very honestly share about the part of the journey that you're in, because everybody started somewhere. Like there's a point where Warren Buffett didn't know what a gross margin was, right? We have to remember that. Like everybody that we see today as like 
I don't know, unattainable mentors or super great or whatever. They all started somewhere. So there's no shame in that. Just don't try to pretend that you're something you're not. And I would say, you know, be yourself. Next question. Several books that have shaped your worldview. A free slash open weekend day with no family obligations. What do you do? How many people are there they would give a kidney to? You're in a room with a thousand random people and are asked to pick a talent. And if you are the best in the room at that talent, you will be awarded one million. What is your talent? Those are interesting questions. I'm going to try. Books that shape my worldview. There's one I've mentioned before, but I'll mention it again. It's uh, Stumbling on Happiness by Dan Gilbert. I've read it so long ago, I'm not even sure I can recommend it because I don't know how good it held up. But the central insight in it about how difficult it is to predict what will make us happy and how most people kind of just look around and do what others are doing instead of really you know, figuring out what's making them happy. This insight has really changed my life. It changed the trajectory into what, I, what I'm doing today, basically, which was to you know, figure out a way to be independent. Yeah. A day with no family obligations, what do I do? I'd probably read a book or watch a movie or something like that. Maybe walk in the woods. I, I still do a bunch of that just on the regular days. But um, one thing I've been thinking about lately is I, I want to figure out a way to read more books again. For a long time, I've been telling myself, oh, I'm not reading because of this or that. Oh, the kids take all my time and the pandemic and I'm reading all day the computer. So at night, sometimes I don't feel... I'm starting to feel some of that is real, but some of that is just excuses. So I want to try to change some habits around reading more because I miss it. I'm coasting on books I've read years ago before I had kids and I'm starting to dislike that. I want new inputs. I want new long-form inputs, right? I'm getting a lot of it elsewhere, but I feel like there's still something missing. How many people would I give a kidney to? I'm not sure. A few. My wife for sure, but a few others, a few friends. But we never really know what we would do in a situation like that until we really have to do it, right? It's easy to say, oh yeah, I would give a kidney for you. But then when they say, okay, sign here, it's, it's different. Uh, the one about the room with a thousand random people. What's my talent? Um, I don't know. There's probably nothing, really. Newsletter writing? Out of a thousand people, I may be the best. Just because there are so few newsletter writers. But I don't know if that counts, right? It's not quite a talent that you can go on stage and demonstrate. So that's probably nothing. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's, that's the boring but real answer. Eric asks, is a hot dog a sandwich? If you define sandwich broadly enough, of course. Next one. Oh, this one is by John Hoover. Um, Hubber? Is it Hubber? I, okay, this is an aside, but there are so many words that I've read you know, forever, and I've never said out loud. And so, I don't know. It's one of these things, right? Is it John Hubber? Hoover? Hi, Liberty. Um, we touched briefly on this one. We chat... I'd love to hear more about how you manage your personal portfolio. Not so much specific stock selections, but in general, how you weight certain ideas. I've heard you reference very large and durable companies, uh, small growth companies. How many stocks do you hold? This is a good question about portfolio management. Basically, I have a kind of approach similar to NZS, the NZS guys, where I have some very durable, what they would call resilient companies, that I'm ready to have as a bigger position because I'm more certain about their future and their downside. 
And then on the other side, I have a bunch of kind of more what they would call optionality companies, which uh, tend to be like smaller, higher growth, like there's a wider probability distribution in their future outcomes. So they could do great, but yeah, uh, maybe not, right? <laughs> so these are kind of bets. And what I tend to do is I let things that work out kind of grow into uh, larger positions. I don't tend to trim all the way up as some people do. Maybe it makes sense, but to me, I don't know. I tend to just let things get to the size that they get to organically. And I sometimes trim things around or, or will sell part of it to finance something else, but I don't have like a hard limit where I'll trim everything when it gets above it, like say 2% or 5% or whatever. Maybe I should, I don't know, I just don't. So I also try to look at what I call look-through diversification. So say I have like 16 stocks in my portfolio. Well, that doesn't tell me much about my real diversification because if one of these stocks is, I don't know, Berkshire or Constellation, well, that one stock is maybe hundreds of businesses, right? And they may be in hundreds of different end markets and in many geographies, many industries, right? Different secular trends. So I try to think about the diversification of what I own, but kind of more on the on the ground business level. Like I know a single stock will still move as a single stock and maybe impacted by macro. And the fact that you have many, many businesses won't always, you know, make a difference, especially in the short term. But I still believe that in the long term, it's much harder for a business that's super internally diversified to hit potholes on everything at the same time than, on the, than for a business that only has one product in one industry, in one country. If that one thing goes wrong for that business, it'll have a much bigger impact. Position sizing is more kind of an intuitive thing for me. So a business that's super diversified, super resilient, I'll have no problem making it very big, while something that's focused on just one end market, one product, I'll have a lot more problem making it big, at least until it proves that it's maybe the winner in that market. It's Maybe it's a winner takes all. And when I buy it, it's very uncertain. But by the time it becomes a big percentage of my portfolio, things on the ground have changed. So I try to also update, like not put businesses and stocks in, in different buckets and leave them there, but try once in a while to think like, oh, has this company like graduated to something else, right? Is it, did it start as a kind of high growth startup, but now it's, it's established, it's much more financially strong and all that kind of stuff. Next one, this one is by Adam Mead, a longtime supporter in front of the show. He asks, what's your process for curating? Give us a sense of the iceberg. How much do you read to get to each issue? Uh, what have you learned about the art of curating, if there's such a thing? I touched on this a bit in a different question, so I'll go in a, I'll go in a different direction. So when you talk about the iceberg, yeah, I, I think that's correct. It's like a film, right? When you see the final product that's two hours long, to get to that, they shot, I don't know, maybe 500 hours of film, or, well, of digital video. And then a bunch of that ends up on the cutting room floor or there's multiple takes of the same thing and they take the best one. So a similar thing happens with the newsletter where I have these Notion files that are all full of things I want to write about. If something makes it to the Notion file, it's because I've decided it's good enough to write about. Probably like 90% there. But this file is getting longer, like it grows faster than it shrinks. So there's hundreds and hundreds of bookmarks in there that I, I'm not getting to basically. I even had to split that, the Notion file into two different cold storage files where I put stuff from the bottom of the file in there because the file was getting too long and it took too long to load. So that's kind of the iceberg for me. 
I always find more things that I want to write about than I have time or space to write about because I try to keep the, the length of the newsletter fairly constant. I try not to have like this huge issue that's suddenly like 60 pages long. So there's a bunch of stuff that stays on the cutting room floor. There's a bunch of stuff that I, I read about. I like I spend the time reading about it, learning about it, putting it aside, but you'll never see it, right? So maybe that's part of, maybe it, it has to be like this. Maybe if you saw everything, maybe it would mean that I'm not reading enough. I'm not curating enough, right? I'm not sifting through stuff enough. But like if it makes it to the Notion file, like it was good enough for me to want to, write about it so i'm not sure i'm not sure if it's really about just putting the best stuff in i i don't think so no i think it's there's really a lot of good stuff that just doesn't make it in i don't know maybe i should write more right people are already probably overwhelmed by the three issues a week um so i'm not sure i'm not sure there's a solution there next one anonymous how did you come to develop your investment philosophy how do you think it will change in the next few years in the next decade that's a good question i think i started just cloning people i admired like at first, I was all in index funds because I read a bunch of books. I don't know if it was John Bogle or some some of the others, but like, okay, low cost index funds, that's the way to beat like 90% of investment managers, like active investing is basically, I kind of learned at the altar of the efficient market thing for a long time. So I had these low cost index funds. Then I read a biography of Warren Buffett. And this made me like, I, I found it fascinating and it really clicked with me his, his approach and I kind of realized Berkshire is kind of a index fund, except only high quality businesses and picked by Warren Buffett and with no management fee or close to zero, right? That's when I kind of changed from the indexes to at first just Berkshire. And then once you know Berkshire, you kind of want more. So you look at all the, the mini Berkshires. So at the times it was like Fairfax and Markel and Lucadia. What else? I think those were the big ones. And so then I, I got a lot into Fairfax. I went to the AGM and the Corner of Berkshire and Fairfax Forum. Hi to anyone from there listening right now. Um, and so I learned a bunch there. I learned a bunch from Fairfax. And Fairfax has a kind of more deep value approach than Buffett. So I kind of tried that a little for a while. But it, it really didn't click with me, right? It wasn't my normal, it wasn't my, my wiring. So I lost a bunch of money trying to buy like deep value stuff or what I thought was deep value stuff. And the... Uh, the real way I found my style is really trial and error. And just over time, like you try a bunch of stuff, you learn a bunch of stuff, and then you try to match the pieces of the puzzle of what you find with the kind of you know puzzle in your mind, right? This piece fits here, this piece, this piece doesn't fit at all. My body is rejecting this organ, right? And you try a bunch of stuff. And over time, I think I found some stuff that works for me. I'm not claiming it's the best way to invest. I'm not claiming I'm getting the highest returns of anyone. I'm not it's only the way that works for me, the way I enjoy doing, the way I feel like I'm getting, you know, good returns. So yeah, at first it's it's a bit with music, right? You you learn from the the masters around you that you can find. Then you try to play their style, right? You're kind of a cover band. And then after a while, you feel comfortable enough at the instrument that you can try to figure out what's your own style. You know, break some of the rules of the others, but make your own rules. Go free jazz once in a while. I don't know, something like that. Next one. This one's my Marcus Kobler. I'm deeply impressed by the prolific amount of quality output you produce. Thank you. While being a responsible husband, father, son, son-in-law. What can you tell us about time management, deep work practice that lead to these results? Well, thank you very much. Um, I don't know if I'm responsible all of that, but I try my best to be. 
Some days I succeed, some days I probably fail. Time management is not something I'm great at in the abstract, right? So if I'm doing something I really like doing, my time management is mostly like try not to do too much of it. Try to do other things too. So I mostly manage my time this way, right? If I find something I like, like investing, like learning about technology, about science, like writing, like talking to interesting people, like I, I, I do this all the time. That's why I work seven days a week a lot of the time because on the weekend, I spend a ton of time with my family and then in the afternoon, there's usually a moment when everybody has a little downtime, right? The kids will maybe watch a, a TV show or play a bit of Minecraft or something. Like my wife will go do a little something. The house is quiet and that's when I, that's my free time. I can do whatever I want. What I want to do most of the time is like go write stuff in my newsletter and read about stuff. So to me, getting to do it is not so hard. It's mostly to get, do it in a quantity that allows me to do other stuff too. At the other end of the spectrum, if I'm, I have to do something that I have no interest in, that's much harder for me. And so it's all a question of balance, but also of design in your life so that you can lean into your strengths and the things that you like, and that'll power you through most of it. And you only have to rely on discipline and willpower for a smaller fraction of it. And then you have enough of it to do that stuff, right? If I had to rely on willpower and discipline for all of it, I don't think I could do it. Next one. Oh, this one's by Graham, a longtime reader and supporter. Thank you. How do you approach being a father? Do you have a framework or particular school of thought you like? Do you prefer to lead or listen? Do you emphasize any values, skills, habits? So which one? How do you plan for regular time with your kids? I think I touched a bit of this on a previous answer. I wish I had like, oh, my my approach is X, right? I wish it had a name. It, maybe it does and I just don't know it. Maybe I should read more about parenting. But I don't know. I just kind of use common sense. I try to put myself in the shoes of my children. Try to put myself in the shoes of my future children. What do I wish my dad had done? Uh, try to raise adults, not just kids, but try to raise adults. I think I think Jim has a good line on this. Like we're trying to raise responsible adults or something like that. Uh, functioning adults. I don't, I don't remember his, the adjective, but he, he's thinking about his kids as future adults and that changes how you approach it, right? You, you can't just rely on authority and on like, because I said so all the time, right? So that's, I, I do try to explain my reasoning to my kids. I try to, like, as I said, make them curious about stuff. I try to, it's the thing about like, teach someone to fish, don't just give them fish, right? So in all kinds of aspects, I try to teach them how things, why things, right? Not just the end results that I want. It doesn't work all the time, but I think a lot of it is based on this. Next one. This one's by Graham again. Do you ever sell based on valuation? I love your thoughts and reflections on the last 24 months on stock market. Yeah, I do sell on valuation, but I kind of have this theory and it's, it's not just about the market, it's about myself, right? Knowing myself. I know that if I was very, very sensitive to valuation, I could never own any quality business. By that, I mean, like, it's almost impossible to have a good business that's going to compound for 10 years that is never overvalued. Imagine a squiggle that goes up and down and up and down while generally going up and to the right. If I sold every time the squiggle was a bit too high and then hoped to get back in when it's back down, 
I, I just miss it. I watch it fly away from me. I, I'd anchor on some price and it would be like, I, I'm not good at going in and out of positions. I'm better at just holding it for years and years. And just when it's a bit overvalued, it's fine. I'll just hold it as overvalued and generally know that it's going to you know, grow into this valuation over time. Maybe if I was a better investor, I would constantly have a bunch of other opportunities and I always sell the one that's slightly overvalued to buy the one that's slightly undervalued. And then when this one is overvalued, then move in and out and rotate through a bunch of stuff. But I find this difficult because, first of all, there, I, I don't have like dozens and dozens of ideas of the same quality as my top few ideas. And it takes me a long time to get fully confident in a company, to learn everything I want to learn about them, to trust management when they say they're going to do something, that they'll do it to kind of know the broad picture, the, the industry dynamics, the competitors, the like having good sources of information about it, having good people that I know are knowledgeable about the company that I can ask about stuff, right? It, it takes a long time to build that up. So if I sell a company and I buy something else, I'm kind of starting from zero over there. So this new thing has to be like not only of equal quality and valuation to the old thing, but it has to be even better because I'm giving something up by selling something I know very, very well for something I don't know as well. So this prevents me from selling stuff, you know, at, at what many would call overvalued levels, just because I think over time, in 10 years, yeah, the squiggle went a bit too high here, but if I sold, I may not be in it at all. So I won't get to benefit from the compounding that that's going to come over the next five, 10 years. So it's not a way to optimize returns to the last percent, but it's a way to for me to sleep well at night with companies I know very well, even if sometimes they're a bit overvalued. So I think what you're asking about the past 24 months is like this huge increase in multiples for a lot of the market after the pandemic, especially in technology. And everybody was like, oh, the future has been pulled forwards by years. Everybody that wanted to go digital over the next like five years, they all did it in a few months. Yeah, all that stuff. I don't know, like a lot of it made sense, probably went too far as it usually does. Uh, maybe it's going too far in the other direction now. I don't know. It's a good question. A bunch of companies were crazily valued and others, everything kind of went up as a, as a kind of tide that lifted all boats, but not all boats were equal. So it's hard to generalize about the whole market, right? Some stuff was crazy overvalued and some stuff was probably undervalued even at the peak right and now it went back down with everything as the tide went out everything dropped and so it's more about finding these individual companies that are going to keep just doing very very well and that were kind of thrown out with the bad water but that's a challenge right investing is not easy next one another one by graham thanks for all the questions man talked a bit about drawdowns and staying in the market through the drawdowns i wasn't missing up the updates what do you do to keep mental equanimity when you're feeling the pressure? I touched a bit on this about when, when I answered the question about uh, not having a bunch of cash. Like to me, it's it's the reverse of the coin, right? Okay, if, if I'm going to be mostly fully invested, it's going to suck when the market is down a lot and I wish I had cash to invest. But the rest of the time, it's going to feel great when I'm fully getting the benefit of the market when it's everything is going up and I don't have like 20% cash that's that's dragging down results. So to get one, I have to accept the other, you know, so when the market's really down, this is when I, I have to remind myself that I made this choice because like, yeah, right now it's, it's frustrating to be fully invested, but it would have been frustrating. I have a huge amount of cash for years before and, you know, watch everything go up. As for keeping equanimity, well, it's, 
I don't know. I feel like over time, the longer I've been investing, the less emotional I get on both sides. So when things work, it almost doesn't register. It's like, okay, went up, whatever. Like I'm, I'm never really celebrating much. And when things go down, I kind of, I feel it, but it's, I don't know. It's, it's a lot more, what's the word I'm looking for? Dampered? I don't know. It doesn't feel quite as intense as it used to in my first few years of investing. So I, I don't know if it's just like experience and you've seen the ups and downs so many times that they, they don't feel quite as novel or special, but only up to a point, right? I, I still like, we're all humans with similar brains. We're right, wired similarly. And so what's going to make others react enough for them to sell is going to also make me react. Hopefully not enough to sell you know, in a panic or from emotion or at the wrong time. But I would be lying if I said like when the market is going down a lot or when my own stocks are going down a lot faster than the general market that it doesn't suck, right? It, there's no pressure or there's no emotion there. There is, but I don't know. It's just, that's a challenge, right? To get the good times, you have to be able to handle the bad times. So I'm not sure if there's a trick. Maybe it's about zooming out, remembering that like the silence, all of this has happened before and all of this will happen again. And that while every squiggle in the line looks very, very important as you're living it, if you zoom out a lot, like there's a ton of those little squiggles in there that nobody remembers, nobody cares about anymore. And hopefully the squiggle that we're living through is just one more of these. I don't know. Maybe this is the big one. Maybe everything changes from here. Like it could have happened any of the past years. There's never any special sign that tells you, okay, this is everything is different from now on because people will predict. What was the saying? Like they predict 10 of the past two recessions or regime change or whatever they call it. Next one, anonymous again. How do you think one can develop a curious mindset? Do you think there are ways to train your mind to be increasingly curious? Yes, I think so. I think I'm a lot more curious now than I used to be. I think curiosity, like many other things, is a habit. It's a bit like a muscle. Like the more you train it, the stronger it becomes. In the same way that many other mental things, many other ways that we use our brains can be analogized to muscles, right? The more you train it, the stronger it becomes. And it's a habit too. At first, gaining the habit is probably going to require some conscious effort. I think at first you have to change some stuff in your life. It's going to require some conscious effort, some discipline. Some like, okay, I, I want to try to get a streak on the calendar. Like every day I want to learn three new things. I'm going to look up stuff on Wikipedia or you get a tally app and every time you do it, you give yourself a point. And if you have like, I don't know, 30 points in a week, you, you, you get a ice cream. I don't know. You, you, you can do all kinds of ways to gamify it and try to get into those habits. But I think once they're formed for a few weeks, maybe a month, I think it's, it's easier to sustain. The best way to do it, in my opinion, is just use what's easy for you, right? What do you find fun? What are you already interested in that you're not doing enough of? And then try to push yourself a bit in those areas. So it's going to be much easier to do that than to say, okay, I want to read more. I want to learn more stuff. I want to be more curious. I'm going to start by reading books about accounting, right? Or I don't know, maybe you find that exciting, but think of whatever you find boring and that's not the place to start, right? If you love video games, then go learn about video game designs. Go, go read books of history about 
uh, they made Doom and Half-Life or uh, try, try to find stuff that's super interesting to you but that you wouldn't look up normally that you'd be kind of curious about but you wouldn't act on and just just do it and, and try to force yourself to do it for a long time and as a reflex every time you wonder about something like I have a, a note file on your phone where you write a bunch of questions if you don't have time to look them up right away right there's all kinds of systems that you can build in your life that can help you and I feel like that's kind of a service I try to provide with the newsletter I feel like everybody's a specialist nowadays. There are not that many generalists that are kind of moving around fields and going in any direction. And so hopefully some of these specialists are reading my newsletter and others, and this injects some kind of randomness into their life, right? They, they get exposed to stuff that they wouldn't get exposed to otherwise. And this helps them find stuff that they love or that they're really interested in that they just wouldn't have seen otherwise. To me, this has great value. One of the things that make life living for me is this discovery, figuring out how stuff works, finding a really good new TV show or album or you know, art in general is underrated, I feel, by a bunch of you know, more, I don't want to say rational because that's not the right use of the word, but more like you know, engineers and finance people. and all that. They're like, oh yeah, this is frivolous. This is kind of like entertainment or just you know, wasting time when you could be learning how to code or whatever. But I feel like there's so much to be gained in all kinds of places, if you find really high quality stuff that really resonates with you, you can learn on so many different levels, right? There's not just like the the type of thing that you learn reading a transcript of a company, right? When I watched Deadwood, I learned so much about all kinds of stuff. But that's kind of a, another discussion. Okay, next question. This one is by Daryl. Hello, I'm a Canadian PhD in chemistry working in the US. Just wanted to say I love your content. Thank you, Daryl. Number one, how is it possible to read and write this much content at the frequency you post i mean this in the most complimentary way i'm very impressive thank you i've had to read a lot of scientific literature in grad school and i still don't think i can read that fast thanks daryl um i don't know i just find it interesting and since i don't have a real job it helps a lot like if i had a, a nine to five i couldn't do what i'm doing now which is why i so appreciate everybody's support you know everybody that's sending a few bucks my way is making a huge difference. And I couldn't write the newsletter without them because it is a full-time job. So if I can't pay my bills with it, I just can't do it. Number two, I know you use Obsidian for note-taking. Would be interesting to hear more about your overall process for finding, recording, and synthesizing information. How do you decide what resources to aggregate information from? How do you decide what makes the cut? So some of that I've addressed in past questions, but with Obsidian, I try to atomize the information, what I mean by that is I try to have a different file for every single thing because they're easier to find and link that way. So I won't have like investing journal and then put everything in there, right? I have a specific file for every company by ticker. And so it's very easy to find everything I've ever read and highlighted about CrowdStrike or Cloudflare or Constellation just by going to the note for that file. And from there, this will link out to all kinds of other concepts and files and other companies. So I try not to put too many different things in the same file. That's one big, big way to make it more useful, I feel like. Next question from Daryl Still, what are, what are you most excited for in the next five, 10 years? On this, I'll, I'll, I think I'll refer back to the previous question about like kind of the sci-fi things I talked about. A lot of AI stuff is very, very interesting for me. A lot of semiconductor stuff. I think a lot of stuff that makes to the newsletter, like that's the stuff I'm curious about. So next five, 10 years, that's what I'll keep following. Next question. This one is also from Graham. 
Can you tell us again how your interest took you from Berkshire to software and semiconductors? Keen sense of your intellectual journey and maybe even hear about your areas of interest today. Yeah, it may seem weird if you look at it as a kind of linear thing, right? Oh, I was into Berkshire at first, and but then I went off somewhere else. But it's more like a bunch of parallel lines that kind of crossed. So I've been into you know computers and tech and software and hardware since I was like 12, right? I was like my dad's, the first computer I was on was like a 386DX 25 megahertz with four megs of RAM. And I loved learning about that stuff and oh, the coprocessor and like I had a Gravis ultrasound sound card that was kind of a special type of cards compared to most of other sound blasters. And I loved learning about it and, you know, adding the little RAM chips on it. And I've always been interested in that stuff. I just didn't think I would invest in it. Like, especially at first when you learn from Buffett and like most people, instead of learning that Buffett himself doesn't feel comfortable investing in tech, well, at the time, especially now, it, it has changed a bit. But when Buffett says that, a bunch of people here, you know, you shouldn't invest in tech or you can't do value investing in tech or whatever. At first, I was kind of like turned away from tech because of that and because not so much because of Buffett, but because all of the Buffett followers go much farther than he does with that stuff. And so when you're on every forum and everything, it's like for a long time, tech was the, they almost laughed at people who invested in tech, right? there's thread started as a short ideas for Amazon and closer to 10 years ago, like Salesforce was a, a constantly shorted stock and every value investor used it as a poster child for one not to do. So all that stuff kind of rubbed off on me. And for a long time, I didn't even look at tech as an investment area. I only looked at it as a more directly at, at the technology and the products that I enjoyed learning about. In more recent years, when I figured my own style a bit more, I realized that I could kind of merge these interests and look at some of these companies that I understood kind of more on the technology and product side and see if some of those could be investments. One of the things with the newsletter is I write about what's most interesting. It may give the impression that I'm only invested in some of these tech companies, but that's not the case. It's just that they are the ones with the most interesting stuff happening, the most news, the most noteworthy stuff. Uh, I may have more money in a bunch of more boring companies and I just almost never write about them because there's not much to write about. So it could skew your impression of how much I'm investing in that stuff. But I am, I just, maybe not necessarily as much as as it looks like. Okay, um, there's still a few questions I haven't answered, but I think this will be enough for this ask me anything. The ones I'm not answering is not because I don't want to, but mostly because I don't really have anything to say about them, right? Some questions are just, uh, I don't know. <laughs> so once again, I want to thank all of you for reading, for listening, for the support, for the feedback, for the questions and the people who send me interesting links of stuff to look at. Like all of this is very, very appreciated, but mostly thanks to, to the supporters sending me a few bucks each month because all of you together add up to something that allows me to do this as a full-time job. And this is really special for me. It's a great job. I love doing it. I hope to keep doing it for you for a long time. So thank you for the support.